Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brethren Church. How are we today? My name is Clark. I'm the pastor here. And if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, love to meet you, love to meet your family. And uh, if we have met, just love to connect with you and catch up, see how you're doing. Well, you were wondering about that joke earlier, weren't you? If you, if you weren't here when uh, Dwayne read the scripture reading, it was from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is famously known amongst Christian circles as the Great Shema. So I thought it would be funny me being a dad of, of two kids now, to say, well, you have your mom and you have your dad. So there you go. You can do with that what you'd like. So you can pray for me. I have a lot of, a lot of bad dad jokes. So anybody go to the Wayne County Fair yet? Awesome. Get to pet some goats and eat some funnel cakes. Hopefully you washed your hands in between. All right. We are in week 12 out of a 13-week series in the life of Abraham. So if you're just now uh, joining us, you're catching us at the tail end of this summer series on the life of Abraham. If you missed any of the past week messages, I just want to encourage you to go to RittmanGrace.org and you can access all of our past week messages in this series and all of our series, and we'd love to serve you in that way. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11... Uh, many of you know this describes what's commonly called uh, the heroes of the faith. And what it's doing in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, it's commending biblical characters of the faith. And Abraham's great-grandson, uh, son Joseph, makes this list. And here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say about him. Uh, it says this, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now those of us that know the story of Joseph, by the way, we did a sermon series on Joseph a couple of years back, but if you know and familiar with his story, there's a lot more dramatic instances of faith in the life of Joseph. So you look at that and you're like, why did they put that there? Uh, a lot more instances that the writer could have alluded to. So it's interesting that he chose that bit about what he told the people of Israel to do with his bones after he died. And the key to understanding uh, this puzzling thing from Hebrews 11 is actually found in Genesis chapter 23, which is where we're going to be today. Because Joseph understood something. He, he got this understanding from his father, Jacob, who learned this lesson from his father, Isaac, and who was first taught by his, you guessed it, his father Abraham, the father of faith. And what all these patriarchs, what all these guys understood is that what we need to remember uh, today as well is that God is faithful and we are forgetful. God is faithful and we are forgetful. And that places, believe it or not, places help us remember God is faithful, you are forgetful, and in his grace, he gives us sacred places and practices to anchor our faith and his good promises as we wait for them. So 
Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me there. Uh, if you want to follow along in those brown Bibles in the chairs, it's going to be on page 15. Uh, we'll also have the words on the screen for you to follow along as well. But at face value, Genesis chapter 23, it seems a little bit mundane. Uh, it seems a little bit ordinary, but it's really not. It's actually really important. This morning, during our time together, I just want us to firstly understand what happens. Uh, what are the events that transpire in Genesis chapter 23? And then secondly, I want us to ponder what was the meaning of these events, especially this new land that Abraham gets, as we'll see. And we want to ask, what was the meaning for Abraham uh, especially for the descendants that followed after him. And then finally, we want to ask, what is the significance of this story and the idea of this land for us who are trying to follow God today? How does it affect us in the here and now? So let's first look at together Abraham's land in Canaan. Abraham's land in Canaan. Uh, let's talk about this a little bit. So God called Abraham out of this pagan land, and he gave him this, this covenant promise uh, specifically that his family would be great, they, they would be numerous, and that they would ultimately possess the fruitful land of Canaan. And so after decades, God finally fulfills his promise to give Abraham a son. Uh, but as we'll see today at the beginning of Genesis chapter 23, Abraham still does not own a single scrap of land in the promised land that God has told him that he is going to possess. So in other words, Abraham and Sarah are still sojourners living in tents in the promised land. So there's two key things in Genesis 23 we want to spend some time talking about today. And one is the death of Sarah. And then secondly, it's the purchase and the negotiation of the land to bury Sarah. So let's look at the death of Sarah first. Notice what the text says in verse 1 and 2. So Genesis chapter 23, starting in verse 1, it says this, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Cariath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. So our attention in this series has been on the life of Abraham, right? Because that's what the series is called, the life of Abraham. But it's also good and right to pause and just ponder and honor Sarah, uh, the matriarch of the faith, like Abraham, uh, she had both her weaknesses as well as her strengths, but she was lifted up in the scriptures as a woman of great faith. And I mean, just think about the promise that she received from the Lord a couple chapters back. If you look to Genesis chapter 17, we read, God also said to Abraham, as for, for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her, I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So she's also remembered by the writers of the New Testament as a woman of imitable faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, once again, and this is your verse of the week, by the way, uh, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So don't miss this. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose lifespan is given. Did you know that? The ancient peoples traced lineages through the fathers. And so it was often not relevant in tracing how long the wife or the mother lived. So the fact that Sarah is the exception is very significant. Uh, she's also the first of God's people um, 
to rest in the promised land. How her body comes to rest there is, in fact, the next major thing that happens in this chapter. So the first thing is that Sarah dies, and the second thing is that the purchase of the cave in Machpelah. Notice what happens next in the story in verse 3. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites, and he said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. Verse 5, the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. So why is Abraham seeking property for the burial of his wife? Well, it's because he owns nothing. Uh, he owns nothing in this land that God has told him that he is going to possess. And he's coming to the council of this, this people, the Hittites, and he says, notice, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. And some of your Bible translations use the word sojourner instead of stranger. So the word sojourner, have you heard that word before? We don't use that a lot, but it essentially means someone who has no permanent home. So think of it this way. Imagine that feeling that you, you got as a, when you were a little kid, and maybe some of you even still, going to your grandma or grandpa's house, right? Like, love going there. It's awesome. They give me candy. They let me stay up way too late. Eventually, though, you start to feel homesick, right? Like, this has been great, but I'm longing for my home. Well, imagine that that's the feeling that you have always. The feeling of longing for a home that you don't have. That's the idea of a sojourner. But notice also that despite being a foreigner, the Hittites call Abraham, notice as well, they call him a mighty prince among us. And this could have been just an exaggerated form of courtesy, but there's a good reason to suspect that the Hittites knew that Abraham had some sort of special favor from the Lord, that that was his reputation. And so we have this description of Abraham given to us in the text, a clear and sobering picture of his status of, of him in the promised land. He's a prince, and yet at the same time, he is this homeless foreigner, this sojourner, already having God's promises, yet not possessing any of them. Uh, chosen and eternally favored by the Lord, but at the same time, having no real possession or status. And so he approaches the Hittites to ask for this burial land and because he has no land, and then commences one of the oddest negotiations recorded in Scripture. And here's the exchange. Uh, we just read a little bit of it in verse 4. He asked the Hittites for property to bury Sarah. And then in verse 5, the Hittites reply, you know, take your pick, right? The most desirable tomb will not be withheld from you. So it sounds pretty good for Abraham, right? Sounds like pretty good news. But then you get to verse 8, and I'm just going to summarize a little bit from here. Go to Ephron, go tell Ephron that I want the cave of Machpelah at the end of his field, and I insist on paying him for it. Well, surprise, Ephron is actually amongst the crowd of people, and he says, it's yours, Abraham, for free. In fact, I'll throw in this whole field around that cave for you, he says. And so it seems to be going really going Abraham's way so far, 
And then Abraham responds in verse 12 to make sure that everybody around can hear. And he says, no, I really want to pay you. Just tell me what is the, the price of this field. And so he's agreeing to buy more than he actually asked for. And he's still insisting on paying the fair price for that land. What's going on here? Well, if you go back to Aphron in verse 14, it says, he's, you know, he says, listen to me, this piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? In other words, what is that between friends? And so he names a price, but it's kind of in this backhanded way. In verse 16, Abraham pats, uh, pays the 400 shekels without a counteroffer, making sure that everyone there heard the price that was named and making sure that the silver is meticulously weighed to make sure that it was accurate, that this may have been you know, fairly common in negotiations in ancient honor cultures. But there's a number of things here that kind of leave us scratching our heads a little bit. So in short, here's what's happening. Aphron is taking advantage of Abraham, and Abraham doesn't care. So what's going on on Aphron's side of things? Why does he offer him this field? Abraham's not asking for the field. Or maybe he's being generous. But more likely what's happening is he's trying to extort more money out of Abraham. So think about it this way. If you express interest in buying a small cottage out of the way, and the seller tells you, well, let me throw in this 500 acre of farmland, they're trying to get you to pay more for the land. And then there's this odd backhanded statement again in verse 15. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? What an odd statement. And the answer is a lot. A lot. And here's how we know that. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David pays 50 shekels for the site on which the temple is going to be built. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah buys a field for 17 shekels. And so the form of negotiation here might have been customary, but the price is outrageous. 400 shekels. So this back and forth was probably a polite way of gouging Abraham. So let's shift now to Abraham's side of things. And to understand his side, we simply need to know that he was locked into two things. Number one, he wanted this land. He wanted this land. He wants that specific cave, the cave of Machpelah by the Oaks of Mamre, later to become the city of Hebron. The place that had, had deep meaning for him. And commentators, you read what Bible scholars say about this, and they know that many of God's promises and appearances to Abraham took place here at this place. And his promises to Abraham for land and for offspring occurred there. It's the place that, in other words, where God met him, where heaven and earth met. This was a significant place for Abraham, and he wanted this piece of land. Here's the other thing, though. He did not care about getting a fair price. He didn't care about getting a fair price. What he cared about was an irreversible sale, a legal sale. And remember, he's saying these things very loudly because he wants to make sure that everyone can hear that there's witnesses involved. And he makes sure that the silver is weighed properly. Old Testament scholar John Walton puts it this way. 
Abraham refuses the offer to receive land as a gift because then Aphron's heirs could reclaim the land after Aphron's death. In fact, Abraham is likely anxious to pay the full price because a discounted price could be later connected to family debt problems and also allow the heirs of Aphron to reclaim the land. In other words, Abraham's interest is in having that land forever. He wants that land. Abraham's family will have that land, and he's willing to pay 10 times its value to get it. So Abraham gets the results. Uh, he gets what he came for, and even more than that. And notice the legal language here. Look at the legal language at the end of chapter 23, verse 17. It says, So Aphron's field and Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, notice, was deeded to, notice this legal language here, Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Verse 20, so the field and cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. So praise the Lord, after decades of tent living, Abraham, this stranger, this sojourner, owns property in the promised land. But don't miss God's grace to Abraham in this, because he had plenty of means. Paying ten times the amount for this land was nothing to Abraham. And he also got more than he asked for. He came to get a cave, and God gave him a field of land and property. So that's what's happened. But the second thing that we want to notice in this part of the narrative is that it's obviously meaningful. So what's the significance of this transaction? Not only to Abraham, but also to his children and his descendants into the future. So we look at Abraham's first land of Canaan. Now I want to talk under the second heading, why this land mattered to Abraham's family. Why does this land matter? It's significant because it made faith and the promise tangible. This land allowed Abraham and his family to have tangible faith, concrete faith. And so God's promise was for, was, was your family will outnumber the stars, he said to Abraham, and will one day inherit all of this region. He says, trust me, Abraham. But there was a really big catch in this promise in the story of Abraham, and here it is, ready? When God gives this covenant to Abraham in, in chapter 15, God is up front with Abraham that it's going to take hundreds of years to unfold. And he tells him, your family is going to be enslaved for hundreds of years, and then, then I will bring them out to give them this land. And now imagine the difficulty of sustaining faith generation after generation when the promise is just so far off. I mean, that's challenging. And we'll think forward a couple generations of the, in the story of Abraham's family. You go from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob to Jacob and his 12 sons. And one of them is Joseph. And then Jacob and his 12 sons, uh, they flee Canaan. And then they leave the promised land to go to Egypt in order to escape the famine. And at the end of Jacob's life, he's there in Egypt with his 12 sons gathered around him. And this... This is what he says to them. See how significant this place of land is, Genesis 49. Then he gave them these instructions. This is Jacob. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Aphron the Hittite, 
the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Here's the point. Faith in the promise was passed on from generation to generation and it was made concrete by this place. This special sacred place where God met Abraham. This statement from Jacob, it clearly had an impact on one of his sons. And remember, when we opened at the beginning of our time to Hebrews chapter 11, coming back to that, it says of Joseph, Jacob's son, that he gave instructions about his bones. And that that verse is actually referring to the end of the book of Genesis. It's talking about uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 25, where it says, And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So both Jacob and Joseph in Egypt were saying, my hope and rest are in the promises of God, not in Egypt. And then God's promise for us does not live here, and it, can, it cannot be found in Egypt. And we may wander around here for a while, but this is not our home. We will not stay here. We're going to be brought back to the promised land. In other words, pass that faith on. And if you've read the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that God's people, this family, ultimately does come out of Egypt. God delivers them miraculously from slavery to bring them back to the promised land. But they were so forgetful. They were so forgetful. God brings them to the cusp of this land. And finally, they're back. And they're a great nation. God is about to fulfill His promise. And then do you remember what they do? God tells them to send spies into the land. And those spies come back, and all but two of them say, there's giants there. We cannot do this. We cannot take this land. And God has just delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea. And He parts the waters. And then not long after that, they're looking at these people and they're saying, we can't take this land. Why? Because they've forgotten. They're forgetful. They have forgotten what God has just done for them and what He promises to give them. And if we fast forward just a little bit in that story, we learn that they're forgetful again. They're in the land and they're doing the conquest, right? This is in the book of Joshua now. And they've conquered some of these places and then God is with them and then all of a sudden they get content. And they think to themselves, we don't need this whole thing. We've got enough. But God wanted them to have the whole thing. But they were content with just this part, and they think to themselves, and they say, this is too hard. We're, we're fine. We're just fine. They've forgotten that God's promise is not just for them, but it's for all. But here's the thing. In that story of failure, in that story of forgetfulness, and that story of frailty we read in the Old Testament, we need to remember how gracious God is to His people. He knows our frame and He knows our 
tendency, our proclivity to wander, our tendency to forget. And so God tells the Israelites to build altars in place where meaningful things have happened. So let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. He gave them the Ark of the Covenant, right? This physical representation of his presence among them day in and day out. What else did God give them? The Spirit came in and filled the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It was filled like smoke. And then He gave them ultimately the temple where the people would gather, where the bread of the presence always sat on the table in the holy place. So why mention that? Aphron's cave, altars, the tabernacle, the ark, the temple, these are all places where eternal punctuates time. They're places where heaven meets earth. And they were visible. They were touchable, tasteable reminders. Reminders that God is in fact, He has intervened. And that He is here among us and that He intends to keep His promises. God graciously gave them those places, those meaningful places and practices to remember what God had done, but also what God had planned to do in the future. So let's try to put some skin on this now. Let's try to apply this a little bit if we can. Many of this might seem a little bit ancient and foreign to us. We think about burial caves and altars and tabernacles. And the question then becomes this, do these events have any sort of significance and meaning for New Testament Christians here today? Ritman 2023? And the answer, of course, is yes, because we have the same God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are the same forgetful people, and we have the same promise. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that we're still waiting on the same promise that Abraham was. It was never ultimately about a piece of land, The image of being sojourners, living in tents, longing for the promised land flowing with milk and honey, this was always meant to convey a simple truth. That this world is not our home. And that we are longing for a better one. And that the body that you're wearing right now is a tent, the Apostle Paul calls it. It's a weak tent. But you will one day be clothed with an immortal one. The promised land is the home of peace and rest in God's uh, presence. That's what that means. Peace and rest in the presence of God forever. And each and every one of us is longing for this. And if you're someone who is not yet a disciple of Jesus, maybe you're investigating Christianity, I would suspect that there's some part of you that already knows that that longing that we're talking about is true. That longing is inescapable. It's this feeling that you have a soul and that you know that you were made for something better than what this world has offered you. And and you suspect, you suspect that death and sickness and violence and oppression cannot possibly be just the natural orders of things that we must accept. To put it another way, you're homesick. You're homesick, but you're homesick for a home that you've never seen and that you've never known. And you feel that because every human being has an eternal soul longing for the new heavens and the new earth, God has promised to provide. That is the promised land. And you may not believe 
all this stuff is true. You might be here this morning or online thinking, I don't know if I believe in all this Jesus stuff. And that's okay because God is patient with you in this journey. But my guess is, my guess is that something deep inside you wants it to be true. So switching gears a little bit, moment of self-reflection for all of us. How are we doing as a stranger and a sojourner and a foreigner in this land? You are a prince, and yet you're a wanderer in a place that's not your home. Let me just say this. If you are finding yourself in life right now grieved by the brokenness around us, but you're hopeful and you're longing for Christ's return, right? if that's us, we're probably on track. If we're inhabiting at this moment of time in our world of cultural upheaval and political division and oppression and all of the evil things happening in our world, so you turn on the news and it's another headline of another evil, sinful thing that's gone wrong. If that's you, and you're so grieved by that, that it drives you to a place of prayer, and it drives you to a place of hopefulness, making us look for how God is redeeming those things, even in the midst of all this awfulness, if that's you, then we're probably going to be a faithful sojourner. We're remembering the promises. But what happens when we forget those promises? When we're not remembering properly, when we're not reminding ourselves of the promise of our places, both prince and sojourner, there's two things that can happen. The first thing, if things are not going well for you, you're likely to feel hopelessness and despair and fear. And you might think to yourself, this is so awful. This is never going to end. It feels like there's no light in sight, you might tend to retreat not to prayer, but away from prayer. You might tend to retreat away from it and then try to cope with it in some sort of other way. The second thing that can happen is that perhaps for you, life is good and you're comfortable. And when that happens, your tendency, when you're not reminded of God's promises, is to drift into complacency. And you might think to yourself, why long for eternity when the here and now is pretty darn good, right? And there's a complacency that can be a danger, and it's in me, and it's in you. And it may be the great danger of the modern Christian middle-class Americans, that we forget to remind ourselves that this is not all that we are living for. We're way too complacent, way too satisfied with the things around us because we're not longing for something better. So let me try to give us some practical encouragement and guidance as we come to a close today. If, if, if it's important to remember, right, and God in His grace has given us ways to do that, how might that actually look, practically speaking? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of a believer, every believer. And for that reason, you can at any moment, at any place, Uh, taste eternity. The scriptures call this the first fruits of our inheritance. And so we have that. So let's not neglect to appreciate that. But God has graciously ordained certain places and practices as well, where heaven and earth meet in mysterious and powerful ways, where eternity breaks in and we taste the new heavens and the new earth, and we taste the promise here and now. And so I want to encourage us, maybe challenge some of us, towards three places and practices. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. The gathered worship of his people, the home, and the table. 
The gathered worship of his people, the home and the table. So the first one, let's talk about that. The gathered worship of his people. Jesus promised his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. He said, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is God's grace to forgetful people. Whether we gather in a class Sunday morning, whether we're gathering in a life group, whether we're gathering for our main worship service like this, Jesus ministers to us in ways that point us towards eternity, towards the new heavens and the new earth. And so would you consider this a gathering, sacred place where God ministers to his children in special ways? I hope you would answer yes. The second place is the home. The home. What if we thought of our homes as sacred places? If you live alone or if you live uh, with a roommate, or especially if you're raising children in the home, uh, ponder this idea, the idea of your home as a sacred place. How do you saturate a home with reminders of God's faithfulness and his promises? What does that look like? Well, God told the Israelites, he gave them an important clue. He told them, we read it earlier in our scripture reading, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said to write his words on their doors. You know, at our house, we have this uh, sign coming through the side garage. It's the end of Joshua 24, 15. It says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You know, that's a helpful reminder, right, of who we are as strangers and sojourners in this land. But here's a way better one. There's a powerful story that John Piper shares in a lot of his books. And uh, when he was a child, he remembers he was formed by a sign. And it was uh, beside the door where he left. Every day when he walked out of the door, uh, he read these words to himself. Only one life to live, and then it's past. Only what is done for Christ will last. What a powerful sign to be shaped by. So here's the question for us. Are there ways that our home can be reminders of what God has done and what God has called us to and what his promises are? But even aside from you know physical space, all physical space aside, think about rituals and traditions of your home life. Do they remind you? Do they remind your household of the gospel and point you towards the new heavens? Or what about observing the church calendar in your home? Advent being one of the prime time uh, opportunities for that, just a couple months away for that. But this can be a really powerful reminder and a powerful way of representing, uh, excuse me, reorienting us to God's promises. And I know the question I try to ask myself is, is this season going to be a moment where my kids are going to be able to look back on this with fondness? We need these tangible reminders year after year. And then here's the third one, of the third place, the table, the sacrament of communion. Consider the Lord's table as a place where heaven and earth meet, a, a physical, tangible meal provided for you, knowing how forgetful uh, his disciples were. Jesus gathered them together for a meal in the upper room the night before he gave his life for them. And then he took a piece of bread, breaking into pieces, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. He then took the cup of wine, saying that, that take this, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then you remember what he said after that? Do this in, what's the word? Remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Until we share this meal again in the new kingdom, remember and look forward. 
Let me close with these final thoughts. If we forget everything we talked about today, just remember this. God is faithful, but we are inevitably forgetful. And so we need His grace. And so let me just pray for us that God would renew our faith in that way. Well, Heavenly Father, we uh, come to You this morning and we know that Your grace is sufficient. And Your power is made perfect in our weakness. We ask that You would renew our faith this morning. Renew our faith and our hope and our endurance. And thank You, Lord, for the story of Abraham. We ask that you would help us to remember that we too are blessed to be a blessing. And we ask that you would help us to remember the places and the practices that you've graciously ordained for us. Whether we uh, worship together, we gather to worship, and whether we uh, practice traditions in our home or whether we are uh, partaking in uh, communion. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our church's mission is to follow God, share His truth, and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.rittmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Rittman Grace Podcast.